Episode 13, Dead or Alive. What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a state police officer. Based on a true and factual account, it is a recount of a story that deals with an incident of self-harm. While it is not necessarily graphic, should you feel this may be upsetting or inappropriate, please desist from listening or contact a local helpline for assistance. He was a big guy, a lot bigger than me, and his actions had shown death in some form was going to happen. He had armed himself with a choice of weapons, and it was obvious he didn't care how this ended. I needed to get distance, so I began to step backwards while making sure to keep my eyes on him. But even as I moved, he continued to come towards me, his steps bigger than mine, so he's quickly closing the distance between us. My right hand reached down and onto my firearm as I raised my left towards him and yelled at him to back off. I continued the small steps backwards until I backed into the fence. Boxed in, with nowhere to go, I watched a spittle flung from his mouth. I'm gonna fucking kill you, he screamed at the top of his lungs as he raised it upwards and pointed it directly at me. The dictionary defines training as the action of teaching a person a particular skill or a type of behaviour. So I suppose just about every and all professions you can think of require some form of training, some more intensive or more ongoing than others. When you apply to the role of a police officer, the constant training, the developed and practiced procedures, you would consider police to be exceptionally well-trained and competent at their profession, right? Wrong. I'm not saying I was an exceptional police officer, but I can compare my capabilities to others and it showed me one thing. There are a surprising few incompetent and inadequate officers out there. Many a time I looked at others and wondered, why did you do that? Why did you react that way? What were you thinking? How is it possible you are a police officer? Now, I'm not going to bang on about this as it's a huge, far-reaching and a contentious subject matter, which is best so for another time. But the proper and successful execution of your duty as a police officer is paramount. In a lot of cases, failure is measured by your actions or a lack thereof. And that brings me to this event. It had been no different to most other days on patrol except for an urgent mid-morning call. A couple had been walking their dog when they passed a house and saw what they believed to be a male setting up a noose in a garage. The local patrol van was immediately dispatched and I offered to back them up. Both of those responding officers were known to me and I would describe them as polar opposites to one another. Brownie was an older, bushy-tailed senior constable with around 30 years of policing under his belt, and his more younger junior partner, Smithy, was new, inexperienced, and he always seemed nervous. The two of them announced their arrival at the address well ahead of me and gave an immediate update. They detailed when they had stopped in the driveway at the address, the male who was in the garage had seen them arrive and he'd reacted immediately by putting his head through a noose attached to the garage rafters, and he stepped off a box. Hearing this, I increased the urgency of my driving, and I waited for the next update as I raced to assist. But the update was to take some time, 
As it turns out, Brownie and Smithy had run up the driveway, hoisted the male upwards and cut him down. It proved fortunate they arrived and reacted as quickly as they did, as without any doubt their actions saved his life. But as pleasing as all that was, it was to head south from there. The next update was a breathless Brownie, now on the run with his partner, chasing the male through his house. He indicated the male had armed himself with a large metal pole and was systematically smashing up the insides of his own house. I listened as the police communications operator kept prompting Brownie for updates, but due to the fluidness of the incident, they came far and few between. When Brownie did eventually come back on air, he said that they'd left the premises and had pursued him up the street. He told the operator they're about to continue the chase into a backyard of a random house numbered 24. I was nearly on them and I redirected myself into the street around the corner from the original address and I sped past letterbox after letterbox until I ripped the car to a stop in front of number 24. It was a nondescript small yellow brick house with a lengthy and tall timber paling fence to its left which appeared to be the only possible point of entry into the backyard. The fence was very typical of nearly every other home in the suburbs and I sized it up as I ran towards it. At around six feet high and with the vertical palings nailed onto my side, there were no footholds so it was going to be difficult to scale. And as I ran closer I could hear a distant combination of yelling and screaming coming from somewhere in that backyard so I knew I had the correct location. And strangely, I questioned how the three of them had actually gotten into the yard as this wasn't a simple fence that could be quickly or easily climbed. But hearing the severity of that commotion escalate, how they got there quickly became irrelevant as I knew I had to get over that fence and in there. First consideration was what was potentially behind the fence as it was all unseen. I had no perception of exactly what I was jumping into, if there was any form of protection or interference. It was the unknown and the last few updates had been garbled communications so I didn't have much information what to expect on the other side. It was one of the golden rules of engagement, have some form of understanding of what you're heading into, to know the lie of the land, so to speak, and therefore more of an idea with what you're about to deal with. The other concern I had was I couldn't arm myself as I needed both hands to get up and over and down the other side of the fence. Regardless, I jumped as soon as I neared the base of the fence and grabbed the top of the palings and pulled myself upwards. I swung my right leg out and up, hooked my foot over the top and lifted my upper body up before briefly pausing to look over. It must have looked strange seeing me hanging horizontally and awkwardly off the top of the fence and yet even though my colleagues desperately needed my help, there was no way I was just going to throw myself over the other side till I had a quick opportunity to see what I was getting into. It only took a second to sum up it was a typically unkept suburban backyard of average size. It had tallish grass throughout, with nothing obvious except for a medium-sized tree about 10 metres or 30 feet away from the fence and off to the left side of the house. I evaluated that that tree would be substantial enough to use as some form of cover should I require it. The commotion was coming from the unseen portion of the backyard and snaked around to the right and behind the rear of the house. Put it down! Put it down! screamed Brownie at the top of his voice. I could tell it was Brownie by the sound of his older voice and it was followed up with Drop it on the ground! Drop it! from Smithy, his obviously much younger partner. 
Satisfied that there was no immediate or close threat, I pulled myself up to the top of the fence and looked down. I couldn't see much under the grass, but the ground seemed flat enough, so with no obvious obstacles, I decided to save time and jump rather than climb down. It was a reasonable drop, but I jumped and seemed to land well enough, except my left foot rolled out and I tipped over onto my left. Expecting the worst, I was thankful there appeared to be no damage to the ankle, so I moved up onto all fours, pushed myself up, and began my walk deeper into the yard, just as Smithy came running around the corner of the house. I changed my direction and headed towards him, and by no exaggeration, he ran straight past me without a single word. As I watched him run past, it was his eyes that got my attention. It wasn't that he'd obviously been hit with capsicum sprayed, as I could see they were bloodshot red and aggravated. It was the look of absolute fear in them and spread all over his face. And then, I'm not too sure what happened next was a case of him being exceptionally fit and dexterous, or it had more to do with what he'd just been dealing with, but he cleared that timber fence better than an Olympian doing hurdles. Seeing that didn't give me a lot of confidence. I could hear screaming and yelling from the blind side of the house, which was obviously now browning by himself with the offender. However, no sooner did I start to walk in a wide berth towards the corner of the house to look around the corner, Brownie came skittering around the edge of the house and straight towards me. I stopped again, and this time I took in three things. The first was the same look of fear on his face as Smithy had. It was also obvious that he too had copped a dose of spray as he was vigorously rubbing at his eyes with the back of his left hand as he ran past. His uniform was a mess as if he'd been fighting on the ground and he had at some point drawn his firearm, which he was now attempting to reholster as he ran. Even though he struggled with sight, he managed to see enough of me to yell a warning. Get the fuck out of here, he screamed at me as he ran past. Now, when I reflect back, I'm not too sure if it was a case of stupidity or human nature, but I stood and watched him run past me and wobble his way some 30 feet or more to that fence where he scrambled up it and literally let himself fall over the other side. Maybe I should have taken that as a warning sign. Everything had now fallen silent, and watching Brownie topple over that fence may have even been funny on any other given day, but now it was just me standing by myself in an enclosed backyard with one other. I turned and looked back to see him walk around the corner, stop and take me in. It would be fair to say he was a mountain of a man. Partially bald, unshaven and several inches over six foot, he had a big build. He was incredibly wide across the shoulders and chest and wore one of those white singlets which we commonly referred to as a wife-beater top. It was stretched tight across his expanse of a chest and had flicks of someone's blood across its front. Now, if that scene didn't present badly enough, it was the look on his face that chilled my blood, as it was a picture of hate and anger. His eyes narrowed noticeably as he focused in, weighed me up, and more than likely determined that size for size, I was no match. Eyes locked together, he raised his arms and showed me his two weapons of choice. A long, thick, heavy steel bar in his right hand and a can of police-issued capsicum spray in the other. What the fuck? For whatever reason, 
one of the boys had either dropped, lost, or possibly even thrown a can of capsicum spray at the male, and he'd now taken possession of it. He visibly dropped into a low and aggressive stance and wordlessly started his march towards me. My mind switched to the police radio at my side, but Brownie was breathlessly yelling something to the police operator, which only served to tie up the channel and make it impossible for me to use. Experience, training, distance is everything. I instinctively started to back up as he continued to come towards me in bigger steps than mine, so he quickly began to close the distance between us. I raised my left hand to him and yelled at him to back off as I reached for the Glock with my right and unclipped the holster. I continued to step backwards until I backed into the fence. Now boxed in with nowhere to go, I watched as Spittle flung from his mouth. I'm going to fucking kill you, he screamed at the top of his lungs. He raised both of his weapons upwards and pointed them at me. I'll make this brief. But earlier I touched on training, and I've spoken about it in other episodes. However, to this day, it amazes me how the quality of your training allows you to break things down and react. We receive an extensive amount of training relating to the process of weapon choices, not just which weapon to use, but performing actions so repetitive that it becomes muscle memory. But a situation such as this is much, much more than just that, and knowing how to deal with it is not necessarily something taught, but something learned. Muscle memory is categorised as a particular movement without conscious thought, and yep, that's definitely going to help getting that Glock out smoothly, as smooth is fast, but these situations are much bigger than that. This is more about a split-second decision process rather than resorting to all guns blazing. It's a process of evaluation, decision-making, what to do, and more importantly, how to do it. Now stay with me here because I would later be criticised for my actions and yet I'm happy for you to judge me. Considering how little time I had to evaluate the situation, formulate a plan and then how to implement it with success, it all had to be quickly calculated. The first consideration was the fence, but not only did I not want to turn my back to him, there was absolutely no way I would have enough time to climb and clear it. The lowest of responses were to take him on physically, and I easily and comfortably say that there was not one part of me that even contemplated that. Next step up was my extendable metal batten, which was not only half the thickness of his thick metal pole, but being around a third of the length it had next to no reach. Capsicum spray was another tick up the list, followed by the 9mm Glock with its lethal stopping power of full metal jacketed rounds. With the severity of the situation quickly developing, my decision and plan of attack was made in the blink of an eye. With my right master hand, I ripped out the Glock while simultaneously removing my capsicum spray with my left and pushed them both horizontally outwards and next to one another. Pointed warningly at him, I issued him with one last ultimatum. Back off, I screamed towards him. You know, at this point of his commitment, It was never going to matter what exact words I chose to yell or how loud I screamed it because he had no intention of stopping or adhering to any instruction. Telling him to back off only served to enrage him and he roared in response. He raised his right arm over his head and loaded up the iron bar. 
Now, this is the bit where you can judge me as what happened next was not something I had been trained to do, and hence the criticism I was to receive later. In a planned reaction, I took two very, very quick intentional steps towards him and released the entire contents of the spray towards his face while keeping the Glock pointed at his huge and exposed chest. Understand when we deploy spray, the instruction is to only release two short initial bursts. However, on this day, I looked upon it as a weight versus quantity and quality of dosage sort of thing. He was a big, angry unit, and therefore he needed a big, heavy dose of the spray. Now I mean the whole contents of the can type B, as I figured I only had one chance at it before having to resort to lethal means. I took the two steps towards him for a number of reasons. Firstly, I doubt he would have expected me to come at him, and I sort of figured it may serve to confuse him ever so slightly. Secondly, I closed the distance so the impact of the spray would allow for more of a primary strike to his face, which would have far greater effect than a less effective secondary wafting type exposure. And lastly, it gave me the smallest of exits to back up again and change direction to gain some of the all-important distance should I need it. I honestly did not want to fire that Glock, even though I knew it may come to that, as he may not be susceptible to the effects of the capsicum spray. So the Glock remained up and pointed towards him, my index finger tightly wrapped around its trigger, as speed would be everything. Then what happened next totally surprised me. He went down like a rock, as for whatever reason, the capsicum spray had a fast, immediate and pronounced effect upon him. Most people tend to flail around a bit as the capsicum spray can take time to react before it begins to cook upon them, as we say. But no sooner had the spray made contact with his face, the big male literally dropped to his knees and threw his weapons to the ground. He found he needed both of his hands to claw at his eyes as he began to roll right and left on his side in the grass. I retrieved both the metal pole and spray and threw them off to the side before I reholstered. I then reached down to him and grabbed his right arm as I wanted to quickly handcuff and secure him to the rear. However, this only served to reactivate the capsicum and it drifted upwards into the air where it found me and I started to feel the effects of a secondary exposure. It became a combination of he was a hell of a lot stronger than me and was now possessed with the sense of absolute purpose to pull his eyes out and that made securing him next to an impossible task. As I held his arm trying to keep him under control and stop him from getting up, I heard the young voice of Smithy call out to me. With stinging eyes, I saw him drop down off the fence and rush over to me where, together, we eventually managed to wrestle both of his arm free and pull them around to his back. Smithy pulled out his handcuffs, but the male was such a big guy, we couldn't close the cuffs around his wrists. Without a second thought, I dropped to a knee and kneeled on the edge of each cuff, applying just enough pressure that they engaged on the first click. Secured, we set him up and let him scream his heart out. I'm pleased to say the male involved eventually received the help and treatment he needed, and as far as I'm aware, no other calls were received to attend his address. As for my actions on this day, judge me as you will. 
My immediate superior criticised me as he was adamant my life was at risk and believes I should have resorted to discharging my firearm as it would have been justified under legislation. Probably, possibly, but as I said in the previous episode, at the end of that shift that day, I went home and put my head on that pillow again with a near clear conscience. But more importantly, that male also got to wake up the next day. It would have been a new day to learn how to smell the roses once again. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.